everyone. This week, it is our pleasure to sit down with Karen Cox. She is a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, and she's the founding director of the Graduate Public History Program there. She's also the author of several important books in Southern history. The one we're talking about today is Goat Castle, a true story of murder, race, and the Gothic South. The story is incredibly complicated and layered, and there's no way we're going to cover all of the details about the murder at Goat Castle in this week's episode. So that means you're going to have to go buy Karen's book. Also, we talked to Karen at her home in Charlotte, and in the background, you're going to hear her lovely lab, Phoebe. Goat Castle is actually dedicated to Phoebe, so it's okay that she's a special guest on this week's episode. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. Karen, it's incredibly complicated and a little strange. So, a lot strange. A lot strange. So if you could, for our listeners who are not familiar with the Goat Castle murder, kind of just outline the basic uh, facts of the story. Okay. Well, in the summer of 1932, in August of 1932, in the town of Natchez, which is um, sits on the bluffs overlooking the Mississippi River, it's about an hour and a half north of Baton Rouge south about an hour south of Vicksburg and um, that summer um, a woman named Jenny Merrill was murdered in her home and it was it turns out that it was just a it was a an attempted robbery and it went really bad and uh, and she was a descendant of the planter aristocracy of Natchez so she was one of the last generation of those people born into the planter aristocracy. By that, by 32, she was 68 years old. And so the, um, the people originally arrested for the crime were her neighbors, Dick Dana and Octavia Dockery, who were also descended from the planter class, except they had fallen on very hard times. And they lived in a crumbling down Annabella mansion with their goats and other livestock, chickens, cats, geese, you name it. Now, when you say they lived with them, you mean the goats lived inside with Yes, they lived inside the house. Okay. As neighbors, they had feuded ever since they ended up being neighbors from 1916 onward. And they had feuded all this time. Very often it was about trespassing uh goats or hogs or whatever and there had been a particularly vicious fight between them and the sheriff's deputies would go out there you know on a regular basis but she was um but that night that august 4th um she she was shot and and killed in her home and the um the sheriff just assumed that maybe these people were involved and they were the ones originally arrested for the crime and they were taken into the to jail and very swiftly images of the pair went circulated nationally descriptions of their house and the fact that they lived with goats circulated the the um 
nationally. I mean, it appeared uh, as a headline in the New York Times two days later. And um, this, it became really, it was, it could have been Jenny Merrill, this descendant of planter aristocracy, her, whose father had been ambassador to Belgium. That would have been a headline. But the headline instead was about the fact that all these people were descended from southern aristocracy and they were all recluses and they were very eccentric. And so it made national headlines and within a few days, like while they were in jail, hundreds of people descended upon Natchez and started just to see Goat Castle because the press had nicknamed the house Goat Castle. Um, and how many people were in Natchez at the time? There were only a little over 13,000 people lived in Natchez at the time. So that's a lot of outsiders at once. Yeah, several. And and they would describe them as lining uh, the road all along. The cars were lined up along the road outside of the house. That all the restaurants in town were full. Uh, because people were just fascinated by this story. It almost It was almost as if the murder became a footnote because the story became really about these two eccentrics living with their animals. And they nicknamed the Dick Dana the wild man and the other woman, uh, and, and Octavia Dockery became the goat woman. And he was, and part of the reason he was known as the wild man was because he had been declared non compos mentis. He was, he, he liked to run around the estate in a burlap sack with a hole cut out for the head. She was his guardian, so they were not a couple. And they were also in their 60s, so they, they were also descended. But here's this, this divergent paths that Southerners may have taken following the Civil War. There, and, it's the, and it also kind of represents, the story in some way represents those divergent perceptions of the South in the 1930s. There was the romantic Old South, which actually only a few months before Natchez was had sought out to promote. They have a, a large group of antebellum mansions within Natchez, and they started, it was the spring, that spring had been their first pilgrimage of homes, and it went on to become an extremely successful pilgrimage. And then, and their motto was, come, come to Natchez where the Old South still lives. Three months later, somebody from the Old South got murdered. And so that became this the headlines as well. So there's this these competing images of the old South, one a romantic version that many people were familiar with, and the other a Gothic version of people who had uh, fallen on hard times, uh, experienced not only economic decline but even mental decline. And what drew you to this story? It's a pretty simple answer. I was working in the archives in the Mississippi Division of Archives and History in Jackson, and I was curious about what what attracted people to Natchez in the 1930s. And he and this guy named Clinton Bagley said he's a historian there and he's worked there for years and he knows a lot about Natchez. He said, "Well, if you want to know." about Natchez, you should look at Goat Castle. He said, Goat Castle put Natchez on the map. And I was like, what did you say? Which I usually have to explain. I'm really saying Goat Castle, not Ghost, 
but goat. And, <laughs> yes, uh, like goat. It has four legs, <laughs> yeah, horns, exactly. like an actual goat. An actual goat. And when he said that, he said, I, I, my, the, my ears perked up, and I went to, to the uh, vertical file, which contains newspaper clippings, and I said, and I looked at, looked at those, and I just instinctively knew I wanted to research the story. And what, I've, what I came to learn over the course of doing the work was it wasn't just about those eccentrics and the goats, although the media certainly made it about them. It was a much bigger story of the decline of the Old South, of Jim Crow justice or injustice, um, and what happens to the descendants not only of planters, but the descendants of slaves. Right. And that was one thing um, when I was looking at some of the beginning of your book that it's really for a long time had been a story about this kind of divergent, two types of divergent white of the white South. And that what you have sort of illuminated is that there's this whole other story about racial injustice in Natchez and Jim Crow and that there really is this other part of the story that no one had ever kind of completely put in dialogue with what gets remembered, which is wild man, goat woman, freaky Southerners in a crazy old house. Yeah. But there's a lot more there. Oh, there was so much more there. for our listeners, what is that extra angle of Jim Crow South that you became interested in in the story? And then how do you find the parts, as a historian, how do you find the parts of a story that are missing? Like, how do you go about thinking about that kind of recovery work or, you know, putting a piece of the puzzle back into place? Well... From the beginning, when I even when I knew that I wanted to write the story, I was like, how can I write this story without the one person who went to prison, without the one person who was um, put on trial? How could I not, you know, not have that? And how did that get missed all this time? Uh, and it and it it was almost as if writers previously just wanted to keep rehashing that tale of the eccentrics and the and the crazy of of goat castle and so um so i started you know just reading the newspapers you know to see how it was being um covered the the crime was being covered and eventually you know you come across the name emily burns and emily burns was the one was the woman that ends up going to prison. There was another African American character here named George Pearls. He he had aliases. And um and he had been he was from but he was from Natchez. He's from Adams County originally. He had gone to Chicago as part of the uh, great migration. And then it was the depression so he returned to place where he had family and friends and he and maybe he could find work. 
with people he had worked for before. Uh, and then there was Emily Burns, who was, she, she represents um, the other path that, that African Americans might take, which was to stay in Natchez and not go anywhere and, um, and live her life there and get married and be closer to family. And so, and so she, like most black women, was a domestic. She had, was a laundress, so was listed as a laundress. And so, um, so when George Pearls comes to town, he's in Chicago, he's known as George Pearls, but in Natchez, he was known as Lawrence Williams, also known as Pinckney Williams. And she calls him, he introduced himself to her as, as that. She called him Pink. What ends up happening is that, is that he goes to he's he he ends up renting a room from her, and he goes out to look for work, and he I, he kind of stumbles onto Goat Castle. Well, which is his formal name is Glenwood, and so he he meets Dana and Dockery, and he quickly learns there's no work to be had there because they don't have any money, and so, but I believe in my research, I believe that he they enlisted his help to rob Jenny Merrill. And then, you know, it, it went wrong. Cause I believe, you know, without being in the house and not knowing what actually happened, I do know that she had her own guns. And I think she may have put up a fight, which is why she ends up getting shot and killed. Right. But it goes completely haywire. This is not what was supposed to have happened. They were just going to get some money and get out of there. And, um, but none of them go to prison. No, they get arrested. The two next door, her neighbors, they do get arrested, and they're held. and And their story becomes the story of Goat Castle, of this whole crime. It becomes all about them and their eccentricities. And, um, and he, you know, Dick Dane is kind of a he is an oddball. You can look at his picture and tell he's an oddball, and he. And he likes, he's, you know, telling his story. So they, you know, the pre- it's all about, you know, this story of, like, how they're, like, Southern elite falling on hard times and woe is me and I never did it. You know, we're obviously very innocent. Um, but they are charged with murder. And the reason is, is their fingerprints were found inside the house. But the judge, they, the judge will end up letting them go home after 10 days on their own recognizance. And never again is fingerprint evidence ever discussed after that, not even at, at the trial. Wow. And so um, it becomes about the, the bullet evidence, you know, the ballistic evidence. So, um, so when George Pearls skedaddles out of town, Oh, he he yeah, he gets he out got of there. he gets out of town quickly, but then on a completely unrelated charge, something he gets picked up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and he doesn't want to be cooperative, according to the deputy sheriff, who then shoots him six times and mur- and kills him on the streets of Pine Bluff. So he never even made it home. Well, what that means is the only person left is Emily Burns. Wait, but Emily Burns, does she have anything to do with She wasn't, she was with him that night. Oh, so she was there. She walked with him. He said, go with me on a walk. Oh no, Emily. And she, I think she kind of was interested in him as a, had a romantic interest. And so of course she's like, of course she goes on the walk and then discovers 
what's about to happen and then she wants to leave and he says he he threatens her he says i'll kill you if you do so she hadn't she was damned either way he was going to shoot her if she said anything and she couldn't leave but then she was just kind of caught there um it's just, I mean, those are some of the outlines of the story, but right. what happens in the ways in which the story is investigated and the way in which um, um, you have this double standard of justice. They, the two can go home. Their fingerprints are found inside the house. They're allowed to go home. Emily, on the other hand, whose fingerprints were not found inside the house, is arrested and kept in in. Adams County Jail for four months without an attorney until one week before her trial. She was by the time she saw an attorney, she was already indicted as an accessory to murder. While the two across, you know, the neighbors are not only do they have um, attorneys volunteering to help them, but they open their house up for tours, and they too go on tour. They go on tour? Yes, they take, yeah. Somebody comes in to represent them, and they go on a stage tour in Louisiana and Mississippi. Oh, wow. And he walks out, and he wears the jumpsuit he was arrested in, the coveralls, and he portrays himself as the wild man, and she says she's the goat woman. But the only reason they're that is because this being arrested. So what ends up happening is they get, there's a group of people, and it's not clear who they are, but they refer to them in the paper as the committee, who are their friends. And they um, uh, basically say you can charge, right? So they charge basically 25 cents to just to enter the grounds. And then once they get the house manageable, that people can actually get in there without stepping in, you know, dung of any number of animals they say they charge him for that and he and dick dana plays the piano for them and sings songs and she <laughs> regales them with stories of the old south wow okay but so the <laughs> other side of this though is there is a black woman sitting in jail yeah yeah while they're doing that and collecting money and making money off of it she's sitting in jail along with her mother by the way I didn't know that until I started getting to the research. Her name was in there, would be in the paper. But they arrested both her and her mother, and her mother more as a material witness. And they, I think they were trying to get her Emily to confess by mm-hmm. taking her mother in with her. And so the two of them stayed in the jail, the local jail, which, by the way, I've been inside of because it's still there, for four months from August until her trial and since she left when she she was obviously she was found guilty within less than 24 hours of a trial and then she was sent to Parchman the Mississippi State Penitentiary on December the 5th so and she and and she was there for she, a number of years or yeah she was given a life sentence she could have been given the death penalty but even the jury of 12 white men didn't believe she had done it. But the, but they couldn't just let her go. No. So the community oh. demanded some, some form of justice, even though many of them 
had doubts. crazy like not to say like the real story because it's all real but like the <laughs> and crazy yeah it's all the real story but the the actual kind of the real legal story that's happening is this Jim Crow South someone has to be blamed for this story that's happening underneath this that's just been completely kind of built over with all this other mythology how did you how did you get back to that story? And I think you sort of asked it and we went off on a Yeah, that's a okay. Long there's so many about, layers to this. There's there are and it's hard for me to explain it. All I can say is like my short version is William Faulkner was telling the truth. <laughs> that was like, that was, that's my short version of what happened with Goat Castle. Okay, so Emily Burns, who was she? That was like my big question. Who was she? Well, she's a domestic. She probably, you know, I eventually learned she just has a fifth grade education. Like most black women, she's just working in white people's homes or working for white people washing their clothes in Natchez. These aren't people who leave behind a record of their lives. There's not a lot of paper trail. None. Yeah. And... So what do I do? How do I, like, how can I do that? So, because I, you know, one of the things I did with this book was to tell everyone's story before the murder. Mm. And that includes her and George Pearls. Mm -hmm. And again, not a lot on him. So I put on my little history detective hat. (laughs) And I started looking at things that you can find on Ancestry. I started looking at census records, city directories, um, if there were any kind of like a birth or death certificate, but primarily city directories and and census records. And then the newspapers themselves mm-hmm. might suggest something it's kind of interesting so as, as I was reading the newspaper sometimes there would be information in the newspaper about part of the case I would have to tell early on but I was finding it in the coverage of the crime I know that sounds weird but I, was, I would take pieces of it and it would help me kind of piece that that part prior to the murder puts that together so so the I, I found her, to tell her story, I had to place it in historical context, mm-hmm. and his as well. He was the guy that went, was part of the Great Migration and went to Chicago, and he worked in a, a factory in Chicago until he, you know, the Depression, and he came back, and that's why he was back in Natchez. Then I have, and then I have, and then I have her, and she's 20 years younger than him. She was 37 when she was arrested and sent to prison. He was 57. So um, her parents are really his age. So I, so what I do is try to put what was it like for African Americans in the post in post Civil War Natchez, and it was rough. 
there was a reason why people migrated out of Mississippi. You know, the violence against them. Um, I mean, the discrimination is nothing. The incarceration of people, putting them into prison so that they can reestablish basically, um, you know, slavery uh, through through uh, mass incarceration at that point. They had the convict lease system. You, you know, men and even women, but mostly men, could be arrested for, for any kind of slight. Uh, black men were often under threat of lynching throughout this whole period. So there's no, no you know, question that they would want to leave if they could. And some didn't because they still have their families there. They yeah. still have roots there. It's Even the place you know. It's the place they knew. And so so I, I, get, I offer this context for their lives, historical context for their lives. And where I have factual information about her particular uh, life, then I insert those in. So like I figured she was probably born around 1895. I could talk about that. I could talk about what was Mississippi like in 1895. Um, you know, uh, her father, I found out, worked for a local company called the National Box Factory. They made crates to ship goods in. And, um, and so I put him in the context. Like, he was born in 1865. So he, probably, he didn't experience slavery, but his parents were slaves. And her, you know, and so one of the things I did was talk about the domestic slave trade that brought Emily's ancestors to Adams County in Louisiana, which is just across the river. So I, you, you know, her story is the story of black people in America. Her story, she, she kind of sat in the, in between that, the story of American slavery she was living in during the Jim Crow period. And then she lives long enough, I find out, till 1969, where, when, you began to see civil rights. Toward the end of the research, I was uh, about to write the book, and I kept, you know, I would, I interviewed this man early on, like a couple years into it. His name was Duncan Morgan, and he's African American. And he's an octogenarian, and he was, he was saying, I said, I couldn't find her. I said, where? I said, you know, I was looking for Emily Burns, and I said, I know that she. Even though she was given a life sentence, her her sentence was suspended by the governor in 1940. That's good, but she still spent eight years in a hellish place. Right. So I said for to, a crime she had very little to yeah, do with. And 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 this governor actually agreed. So I said, what happened to Emily Burns? He without missing a beat, he says, Oh, Miss Burns, uh, she lived across the street from me, and she she married Mr. Randolph. He, he knew who I was talking about. Oh, she came back to Natchez, yeah. So I was just like, oh my goodness. I, I went immediately after that interview, I went to pick up city directories and there she was, married to Lee Randolph. And I went back in time and I could see Emily Burns before, you know, that would have yeah. been her name before she was Emily Randolph, Emily Burns. And she was living in the same house she had been arrested in eight years before. Wow. So it was just like doing something like this, like local history involved, you got to like get involved in the community and talk to people 
but then you have to use resources that you might not ordinarily use. Right. So people think, oh, well, all the you're going to find everything you need, and if somebody in the newspaper or if somebody left behind letters or whatever, no, because she didn't have any of that. So I have to recover her story by doing a number of things: interviewing people, looking at things where she's listed as a, a citizen in the in the town of Natchez. And the last thing I did, and I've been told about it, was uh, I went to her church. I had figured it out, like I from talking to other people, that she had attended this church on the outskirts of Natchez. And I went out there, and um, I knew what time. It starts at 1130. That's, I'll get there a little early. I'm sitting, I'm like, they're clear they're having Sunday school in the sanctuary. I sit in the back. They wouldn't even, it was like I was clearly a standout. So they were like... And I was so nervous because I didn't know what I was going to find. I didn't know. I'd heard that she still had family members because she never had children. That's the other thing. I didn't have descendants. So I had to see if there were people who knew her. Great nieces, great nephews. Yeah, anybody. And I started talking. I thought, oh, this is my only shot. I'm going to get up and tell what I'm doing here and who I'm looking for and everything. And I did meet second cousins. These there these are women in their 60s and, and and up who were uh remembered her and they also took care of her when they were young girls so she was in bad health and so they invited me to their so I stayed for the service and they invited me to one of the sisters homes the next day and I said I've never seen a photograph of her could you like, do you have anything? You know, so I, and I told them, I shared everything that I'd learned, and they they were surprised because they hadn't been told everything about the crime, and they felt like they were learning something from me. And, and then about, I don't know, maybe half an hour into it, one of the women um, got up and walked across the room and came back with this family portrait from 1913. And she said, there she is. Wow. And it was just like... I'm surprised I'm not crying about it now because anytime I'm in front of a group, I've talk, told the story a few times and I start to cry because it was such a a moving thing. It was the most, I don't know, it's just the most moving thing that's ever happened to me as a historian, as a writer. And that that photograph, which is in the book, it said, here she is. She, it wasn't a mug shot. It wasn't a photo of her as a convict at Parchman. It was her in the context of her family, her large family. There was her mother, there was her uncles, there was her cousins, her aunts, and there was her grandmother who had been born a slave. And just that photograph alone helped me write this story. That photograph was just everything to me because I, her story to me is so central to what happened, even though, it, even though it had never been told. So I'm interested to see what happens and what people think in Natchez about it.
stories of people like Emily Burns tell us stories about America, American history, about culture and community, about justice and injustice, um, about race, slavery, you know, Jim Crow. You know, it's there's you know all these things are like tied up in her life in some way. And and this story, I think, I had to call it Goat Castle. I didn't really want to, but that's how people know it. Right. I don't know what I would have said, what I would have renamed, because to me, it's her story too. And so when you see, as you see on the cover, yes, I have the wild man and the goat woman there, because that was what, that's how it was covered by the press. But I have Emily on there too. And for the people who think they know the story, they're going to wonder who she is. Even if they just pick up the book and look at the cover and say, and see her face, they're going to wonder who she is. And people in Natchez probably as well. But I just, I hope that they will. And I hope that they'll you know, read the story and realize, like, the effort that I, like, put into it. I, you wouldn't believe the places I went to try to recover her story. But I, um, I'm proud of it. And uh, it's been the most rewarding uh, experience of my career. thanks to Karen and Phoebe for having us in their home to record this week's episode. You can find a link to buy Karen's book, Goat Castle, on our website. Our website is aboutsouthpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajoa Danso are my co-producers, and Lindsay Baker helps us with copy and social marketing. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. We'd like to remind you to buy tickets to the Wren's Nest Brewer Rabbit Blues and Barbecue Festival that happens on Sunday, November 5th. You can also find a link to tickets on our website. We'll be there. Next week, we're back with a special episode on Providence Canyon in southwest Georgia. It's so hard to explain, I can't even tell you what it's about. Um, it's a canyon, it's the Little Grand Canyon, but it's not a canyon in the way you might think. Tune in then and find out more. By the way, this is the best part. This guy that was boarding with her, who was might have been there that night, his name, this is a black man now, his name was Edgar Allan Poe Newsom. That was his name. Newell. Newell. Really? Edgar Allan Poe Newell. And occupation, embalmer. Stop. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> no. Okay. See, Karen, now you're pulling my leg. <laughs> I'm not. It's, I saw right it's in there. He was one of the people boarding with her, and so the you know they arrested. Her.